right, well, our sermon passage today is Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 867. This passage is incredibly rich. It's theologically dense. I think one could be justified by preaching full sermons on each of the five verses in this passage. I don't think that's what we're going to do. We'll see what we can do if we can address it um, honorably in this one message today. Um, To help us to understand the context of today's passage, I'll begin reading in verse 18. We looked at verses 18 through 20 last Sunday, and 21 and 22 were part of our focus this past Wednesday at our Thanksgiving service. Um, So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy living and inerrant word. Again, Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he, as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then the focus of our time this morning, beginning in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Pray with me again. Lord, these are important matters that we're reading about this morning. They're eternal matters. They're matters, Jesus, that you tell us are matters of life and death. Lord, we pray that you'd pour your spirit out again upon us this morning so that we would rightly understand and apply this portion of your holy word. Amen. Well, I'll share with you this morning that this is an important passage in the life of the young family and in our ministry. And I don't know that Ruthie and Noah know that, and I don't know if Amy would remember why I'm saying that. But it was 16 years ago, right about this time of the year, that Emmy read a book 
that the Lord used in a significant way in our lives. It was about this time of the year in 2007 that Amy read this book, a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And our passage for today is a key motivation behind Piper writing this book. And I remember sitting on the sofa with Amy as she closed up this book, having completed her reading in it. She closed up the book and she looked at me and she said, I think you should quit your job and go to seminary and become a pastor. And the rest, as they say, is history. Don't waste your life. That's what this passage that we have before us is all about. This passage is about saving one's life or losing it. It's about gaining the world but losing oneself. It's about saying no to oneself in the world And it's about saying yes to following Jesus. It's about seeking the acclaim of one audience rather than another. It's about death. And it's about eternal life. John Piper's book begins with a story about a man advanced in age, approaching his death, frail from illness and age, who with tears in his eyes looks up and says, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. John Piper also references a passage from Luke 12 in which Jesus tells a parable, which is known as the parable of the rich fool. It's from Luke 12, um, beginning in verse 16. Or he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many, many years. Relax, eat. Drink, be merry. And then Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus said, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Don't be a fool. Don't waste your life. Immediately prior to telling the people this parable, Christ told a man, take care and be on guard against all kinds of covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. For what are you living your life? Is it for the abundance of possessions? Is it for the abundance of experiences? Is it for the abundance of worldly pleasures? If you're living primarily for any of these things, God's word and the Lord Jesus himself 
tell us we're living as a fool. You're living as a fool and wasting your life. And it will result, Jesus says in verse 24, of you forfeiting your very soul. But in our passage, the Lord Jesus presents to us a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? How can we not waste our lives? How can we not live like a fool? Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Immediately prior to the passage that we're focusing on today, Christ tells his disciples that he'll soon be going to the cross. And here in verse 23, Christ says that the way of his disciple is also the way of the cross. Verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And note that he says he must do these things. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. But thanks be to God, he must also be raised again to new life on the third day. This was all part of God's eternal plan of redemption. That suffering, that way of the cross, was was the Father's plan for his Son. And that his disciples would be called to deny themselves and pick up their cross and to follow Christ into death and new life, that too is also part of God's plan for us as well. And if that's true, and it is, then we must trust that it's good for us to walk in the way of the cross. Now, we're not called to take up our cross to die to atone for our sins. Christ has already done that for us. But what does he call us to? Well, first, notice that we're called to deny ourselves. The Christian is to, is to die to himself or herself. We're to live for God and live for others. I'll talk about living for the glory of God a bit later. But we're also to live for the sake of others. We're to count others as being more important than ourselves. That's Philippians 2, our call to worship passage. We're to consider not only our own interests, but also the interest of others. And we're to die to our passions and our lusts, and we're to live for Jesus. That's what we're told in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. We see this dying to oneself, dying to the passions of the flesh, dying to the appeal of the world. We see that in Christ's call to take up the cross. We're to take up the cross when we, and we do that as we die to ourselves to serve another. We take up the cross whenever we suffer for the gospel in any way. As we give of ourselves for the sake of others, when we give of our time, when we give of our talent, when we give of our treasure for the sake of the gospel. This call to deny oneself and take up the cross remembers that our old selves have been crucified. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And through faith in Christ, we've, we've been made to become new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It remembers that we're being renewed into the image of, of our Creator. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we heed Christ's call to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and follow Him, allowing Him to lead us, praying that the Father will give ears that are quick to listen and a heart that's quick to respond to His calling, to His leading, walking where He leads us and seeking to live as He calls us to live, walking in his ways rather than in the ways of the world. And we do this because, verse 24, whoever would save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. If we live to gratify the pleasures of the flesh, we may believe that we'll find pleasure but that pleasure will not lead to a lasting satisfaction. That's what we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in Scripture. Living for the pleasures of the self or living for the pleasure of the world is what leads to a wasted life. But living for the sake of Christ, living for the glory of God, is a life that leads to eternal joy. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in the way in which you live. Paul speaks of the same in Colossians 3 and elsewhere. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what the unwasted life is, essentially. Living for the glory of God. The unwasted life is a life of Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The unwasted life shows that Christ is more valuable to us 
than our money is. The unwasted life shows that Christ is more valuable to us than our possessions are, than our time is. We display the supreme value of Jesus by living our lives, by by treasuring Christ above all things. For those of us who have been saved by the redeeming work of Jesus, who's exchanged his life on the cross for ours, we then in response live for him. And in response to what he's done for us, we live our lives for the glory of God, for the purposes of Christ, rather than of only living for the pleasures of the self or the world. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? In verse 26, Christ gives the warning, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. For whose affirmation are you seeking? Are you seeking the acclaim of the world? Are you hoping to impress your neighbors or your co-workers or your family or your fellow students with your possessions, with your accomplishments? That's the danger in this world. But to that temptation, Jesus says no. He says don't attempt to receive the affirmation of mere mortals, but live your life before a different audience. Live your life knowing that there's a God in heaven who rewards those who value him above all else and who seek to honor him with their lives. That Jesus is coming again is presented here as a motivation of how we're to live our lives. The Lord Jesus, Christ says, is coming again in glory. Christ even tells the disciples, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's that about? That's a bit of a confusing verse. Does this mean that Christ was expecting to go to the Father and then return again to the world to come in glory um, during the earthly life of the disciples? And was he just wrong about that? I don't think that that's the case. But instead, I think that this speaks of what can be referred to as the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God and of Christ's glory being revealed. You'll remember that John the Baptist declared the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, too, came proclaiming that same message. The kingdom of God is at hand. During Christ's earthly ministry, the the kingdom of God was breaking in more and more. Whenever Jesus would teach, the kingdom of God would come a little bit more. Whenever he would heal someone, turning back the effects of the fall, the kingdom of God was breaking in more and more. When he drove out demons, the kingly reign of God came to be more of a present reality. And so on. The kingdom of God had come. 
And the kingdom of God was becoming more and more of a present reality. And the kingdom of God would continue to come in greater and greater degrees. If you look at the passage um, that appears immediately before today's passage, or immediately after today's passage, if you've got your Bibles, do you see what comes next? It's the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus takes Peter and John and James, and they go up to a mountain. And while there, the glory of Christ is revealed to them in fullness. And Moses and Elijah even appear with him. And the voice of the Father rings out, saying, This is my Son, the Chosen One. Listen to him. Peter and James and John witnessed the coming of the glory of Christ that day. The disciples would see more of the kingdom coming again at Christ's resurrection. The kingdom would come yet in a greater degree again on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of Christ was poured out on the church. And one day, if we deny ourselves, if we pick up our cross daily, if we follow him, we too will all see the glory of his coming. In this passage, the Lord warns us against our natural inclinations. He knows how the praise and approval of man can lead us to seek to gain that kind of approval rather than the approval of God. Christ knows that we can get caught up in the things of the world. Christ knows how the cross can seem to be a scandal. He knows our tendency to to shrink back from proclaiming and defending his name and his reputation and even his callings on our lives. We want to believe that we're self-sufficient rather than dependent. We want people to see us as being strong and capable, not weak. But Jesus calls us to walk the way of the cross, to walk the way of denial. He calls upon us to not be ashamed of his cross. The promise of the gospel is that as we crucify the ways of the old man, he gives to us the joys of the new life. And he promises us that that the abundant life that he offers us in faith is the one real path to true joy and lasting satisfaction and even eternal life. And when we focus upon his glory, he assures us that we will one day see his fully revealed glory and be welcomed to live in his presence forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we want a life that lasts. Thank you that you make that kind of life possible through faith in Christ. And you don't just make that be a possibility, but you also make that to be a reality. You make that to be a present reality and an eternal reality. Jesus, show yourself to us as being one worthy of following. Jesus, thank you that you didn't turn back from walking the way of the cross. Thank you that you were willing to pick up your cross 
at Calvary and you shouldered our sin, you shouldered our shame. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to lose your life so that our lives could be saved eternally. We praise you that you were raised again to new life and that you now work new resurrection life in us. Lord, may we glory in you and may we find our glory in you and in your cross rather than in praise of man. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.